American soccer fans. Welcome to episode 96 of the Stars and Stripes FC podcast. Donald Wine here, manager of Stars and Stripes FC, your source for all things U.S. national teams, the players that comprise them, and everything else surrounding the game of soccer in America. Welcome to Black History Month. We are a little over a third through the month, and over at Stars and Stripes FC, as I have done in previous years, once again, I am doing my very best to bring you some of the best underreported and most important black soccer history stories to you for this month as we go through black history month. There are so many stories out there and I've done the series off and on for the last five years, mainly as a way to kind of learn myself and and hopefully uh, encourage others to learn about some of these stories. And sometimes it's good to look back at some of the stories that have already been done, have already been written to go through them again, just kind of relive some of those key moments or look at some of those important stories that were already told. So for this episode, I'm going to take a look back. We're going to look back at some of the international black soccer history stories or moments that we've already covered on the site and that I found to be among my favorites to do. Now, there are a ton that you know we're not going to talk about today, and I highly encourage you to click on the Black History Month Soccer Hub that is present at the Stars and Stripes FC page. It's on the front page right in front, so you can click on it and look at every single story that we've done over the years and will continue to do over the month. But for this episode, I want to look at a few that I thought were you know, super important and really ones that I enjoyed learning about and also enjoyed writing. And so I'm going to begin with one that's kind of interesting. It's called Three Little Birds on, on the site, but it's about Bob Marley. And Bob Marley, of course, one of the great singers in the history of the world. But his reggae it only reached, you know, billions of people. But the other thing that he enjoyed just as much as singing was soccer. And in this story, I talk a lot about how his you know love for soccer is what fueled some of the passion behind some of the lyrics of his songs and, and how he was able to kind of take the time to do both and when he felt like he wasn't able to do soccer he felt like he wasn't his best for singing it's a very interesting story obviously you know one of the things that was said about him that's that he toured incessantly he was always on the road he was always in the studio it for a lot of people it was unclear how bob marley was able to do so much in such a little such a short period of time but he was able to record so many hit records but also tour all the time. And when he would go on tour, it was said that he could, he would only take a guitar, some marijuana, the Bible and a soccer ball. And that's it. Those were the things that were important to him, his, his religion, his weed, but also his music and his soccer. Um, and everywhere he went, he would bring a soccer ball. He'd be kicking around, dribbling around, and there would be some incredible matches, pickup games that he would do with his tour uh, with celebrities that would come through, uh, some players who knew that he was in town would stop through to play soccer with them. And that was one of the things that kept him happy. It was one of the things that helped him relax in, you know, again, a very stressful environment of trying to, uh, you know, heal the world essentially through song. He was able to heal himself through soccer. And it, it there's a great documentary uh, a couple of documentaries that have been about Marley, but one in particular uh, that's simply called Marley 
he it discusses his love of soccer and how soccer kind of shaped his life. Now, I will say what is kind of the painful part of this story is that soccer is kind of what led to his death, um, or at least what discovered the cancer in his toe that would that eventually would kill him. Um, playing against some some journalists in Paris in 1977, he took a hard tackle and he was bleeding and he thought, hey, you know, I just got to wrap this up. My toenails off. I got to just kind of bandage it up and I'll get back in the game. But there was a little, you know, bruise underneath. And at first people thought it was just the soccer uh, injury that kind of contributed to that. But when it didn't go away, he turned to a doctor and the doctors are what told him he had an aggressive form of skin cancer. They tried to get him to amputate his toe, but he knew that meant his playing days would be over or at least, you know, very much altered. So he refused it and the cancer eventually spread and he passed away in 1981 at the age of 36. But his music, because it's so intertwined to the game of soccer, his music has become kind of an anthem for soccer. A lot of clubs have adapted his songs. Most particular, uh, Ajax, uh, they have adopted Three Little Birds as their club anthem. And one of Marley's sons, Kai Manny, has showed up at games from time to time, especially big matches in Champions League, to sing Three Little Birds as they traditionally do as the team comes back out onto the field for the second half um, of every game. And those words kind of, you know, help them calm down again in a stressful environment where they're trying to win a ball game. Everyone, you know, sings those words. Don't worry about a thing because every little thing is going to be all right. Just that, that, that calm and hope and that moment where they say, Hey, we can lock in and do this. We just got to believe in one another. And, and Bob Marley, his music united so many people. This game has united so many people. So it makes a lot of sense that those two would intertwine through the music of one of the greatest musicians that have ever lived. So uh, again, check out that story, Three Little Birds, about Bob Marley. I want to move on to another story that's um, very, very sad, and but it's one that's important. It's something that's kind of hit in other sports recently, namely football, and it's the story of Mark Vivian Phil. And it's one of the saddest days in soccer history, in my opinion. In 2003, in the FIFA Confederations Cup, Uh, Cameroon was playing Colombia in France. And during that match in the 72nd minute, Mark Vivienne collapsed on the field. No players near him. And people kind of rushed to his aid, led him off the field. But it was found out after the game that he had passed away. Um, And Cameroon had won and gone to the final. But they clearly obviously weren't the same because it was... Uh, that victory in the celebrations were diminished by uh, the fact that their one of their best players was dead. The sadness of it all, you know, medics trying to bring him back to life. These are vivid images that burn into the memories of so many people who watched that live. I was one of those people watching that game and just not fully grasping what's going on, but in the back of mind, you already knew is something that you know nobody who witnessed that live will ever forget it's uh there's some images out there and i won't show them to you but there's images out there of of him on the stretcher being let off the field and you already know that he probably uh at that point was already you know had already passed away but 
it's one of the sad moments in sports history, much less soccer history. We have seen uh, equally serious situations in, re- in previous years. You know, Christian Eriksen uh, during the 2020 Euros, he collapsed in the middle of the game. He was revived and eventually survived. And um, but for a moment there, it was a similar situation in the NFL. Just you know, a, a month ago, we had the Demar Hamlin uh, collapse on the field and. And CPR being done on the field in front of a worldwide audience uh, on Monday Night Football, it and the the you know just the the angst and and anguish that came from that he he of course survived. Um, and those are two stories that have a you know warm ending in the sense that Christian Erickson has returned to football. Uh, Demar Hamlin, you know, they expect him to eventually return to football. That timeline is to be determined, but he is alive and he is, you know, is healthy and is, you know, raising so much money for his charity um, to kind of make it where this sort of thing doesn't really happen again. But there's been so many instances where, you know, guys like Mark Vivian have not come out of it and they have passed away on the field. But this was one of the more vivid moments in soccer history. One of the sad, sad days. And, um, it was an important story to tell, even in the fact that it was sad, but it was important to tell a story like that because, you know, black soccer history and black history and American history isn't always great. And it's, there's good moments and there's bad moments, but we learn from them both. And that's why I think it's very important that you read, uh, that story. The world loses Mark Vivian Foe. And finally, before we go to break, I want to talk about another, uh, story that I thought was, awesome it still is awesome it's one of the you know great moments in in world cup history and that is when south africa hosted the 2010 world cup their opening match against mexico it was a beautiful day for africa south africa and the entire african continent to celebrate their football probably the most underrated continent when it comes to football so many great players some of the greatest this world has ever seen has come from Africa, but they always it always feels like they're underrated when you talk about the world's greatest and the goats and and the greatest teams. You never really think about some of these African teams, but Africa wanted to prove that this was no slouch, that they were here and they that this World Cup was theirs, and it started with the goal of all goals from uh, uh, from South Africa, Sifawe Shabalala. His goal in the 55th minute was absolutely remarkable. It was a banger, first of all, um, for for us American fans. It was against Mexico. That makes it a little bit better. But at the same time, it just absolute bedlam. Everyone who was a fan of South Africa, every African whose team was in the World Cup, every African whose team wasn't in the World Cup, every it felt like an entire continent screamed for a goal and it wasn't just them black people all over the place i don't think i've ever screamed louder for a goal than watching that screamer um go into the upper 90 and the dance afterwards the celebration it was a goal for an entire continent it was a goal for entire diaspora it was a goal for the culture um and it was something that when you watch the video it always brings a smile to your face and and just will always uplift you it's one of those just one of those feel good moments 
in soccer history. Of course, South Africa uh, did not win that game. They ended up drawing that game. But hey, they had that moment. They had that goal. And as the host nation, you always want to represent well. But when you have an entire continent behind you, that pressure is immense. And Shabalala's goal ended all that pressure with one little kick. So uh, really, really enjoyed writing about that. That's one of the first stories that I wrote about um, because it's one of the, you know, again, one of the more fun, uplifting stories to tell. Let's pause here for a quick break. On the other side, three more stories I want to tell you about. It's Black History Month and we're reliving Black history right after this. Okay, we are back, and I think I'm going to tell you my favorite story that I've ever written for Black History Month, and that story is about Didier Drogba. Didier Drogba is a legend in the game. He, you know, a legend just about everywhere he goes, both for Ivory Coast, most notably for Chelsea, helping them win several uh, Premier Leagues, and also the Champions League in 2012, but those were not his biggest accomplishments. His biggest accomplishment is that this man literally stopped the civil war for one, whether it was for one day, for one hour, did not matter. This man was powerful enough to tell both sides of a conflict in his home country, the Ivory Coast, to lay down their arms and root for the national team. It's an example of how powerful soccer can be, how powerful these athletes can be when they use their platform, they use their voice for something good. And We'll go back to the story in 2006 or 2005, I should say. Uh, Ivory Coast was trying to qualify for the 2006 World Cup. But when they were doing that, they were doing it in the midst of a civil war. There was uh, Ivory Coast had basically been split into two. There was an opposition faction that had controlled one part of the country. And then the government controlled uh, another part of the country. Divided among, you know, village lines, religious lines party lines no you name it it was a there this country was absolutely split into two and when the ivory coast qualified for the world cup dda Drogba was the captain of the team at the time and in a press conference in the dressing room on national tv they're celebrating that they've made it to the world cup they're you know one of their biggest moments for some of these players to make it to the world stage they're going to germany for the world cup and dda Drogba used this moment to call for peace. He picked up a microphone that had fallen on the floor. He fell to his knees and his teammates joined him and he begged to the rival groups asking for peace. And I'm just going to quote what he said on there because I think it's important to quote him directly. And he goes, my fellow Ivorians from the North and from the South, from the center and from the West, we have proved to you today that the Ivory coast can cohabit and play together for the same objective to qualify for the World Cup. We ask you now, the only country in Africa that has all these riches cannot sink into a war. Please lay down your arms, organize elections, and everything will turn out for the best. He mentioned that it was something that he did instinctively. He, you know, All the players had talked about what was going on and they, they wanted to do something about it. They felt that the World Cup was a perfect time to kind of unite the country behind their team. And, and it, you know, hopefully... Uh, stop the conflict that had been raging and tearing apart their country. And it worked. And even if temporarily there was some peace 
there was a peace deal uh, agreed to by both sides and his his words worked his his moment worked and after the world cup still he he tried to continue to keep the peace and and sure there were times where there were conflict but they they struggled on and off with this peace deal but what he did was uh for the 2008 Africa Cup of Nations for qualification for that they were playing against Madagascar and Didier proposed that this qualifier be played in a city that was considered the capital of the rebel faction. And he thought it'd be a chance to bring everyone together. Instead of playing in the capital, he said, let's play it in this part of the country. It, and I, I'm going to quote him again. The game itself became a symbol of an attempt to heal divisions. I saw soldiers from the army watching alongside soldiers from the rebel forces. People were heard to say, if Jogba has been to Buakai, it means it's safe to return. It was amazing to realize how much impact us footballers could have. And he basically said, hey, throw down your arms, both the North and the South factions between religious and political parties. Join us at the match for one day. Let's celebrate being Ivorian together. Uh, and he did that. And so the team, of course, destroyed Madagascar. Uh, they won 5-0, but after the end, they you know, invade the pitch, celebrating with the players, lifting some of them and carrying them off the field. And soon after the war was over, the peace became more permanent. And this man literally helped stop a civil war. Again, he said, if only for a day we can we can have peace, maybe we can have them the other days. And sure enough, that's exactly what happened. So I don't know anyone who can diss Didier Drakba after reading the story. Very serious. Um, this man is a legend for what he's done. So I, I encourage you to read that one. That one's a really, really interesting piece, but also it it shows you again just how strength, how much strength can come from the game of soccer, how much power can come from the game of soccer, and how it can unite anything. It can it can heal any wound that has opened. And I think Didier Drogba proved that. One story that I think is pretty interesting occurs in South Africa. We're going to go back to South Africa, but it has an American link. And that team is the Kaiser Chiefs. The Kaiser Chiefs, one of the you know most popular teams in all of Africa. They're part of the Soweto Derby. They play Orlando Pirates in that derby. It is one of the biggest rivalries in the entire world, not just Africa, the planet. And the Kaiser Chiefs have an interesting story because their name comes from in part, the NASL, the old NASL from the 70s. Yes, the one that Pele played in and Becca Byron, those type of guys. Kaiser Mutong was a soccer player from South Africa who had moved to the United States to play for the Atlanta Chiefs, uh, which was the team in the NASL. He played for a couple seasons, and then he moved back to South Africa, where he then formed the Kaiser Chiefs, taking his first name and combining it with the nickname of the team he had just played for to form his new club. And I thought that was pretty cool, the fact that you know a lot of people think that American soccer takes from everybody, and they try to, uh, our, our style, our, our, our culture, our supporters, everything comes from, or is, or is trying to emulate other places but it's really cool to see that yo other places take from american soccer too they can be inspired by what we're what we're providing here and yes it was back in the 70s but there is still that 
popularity of the fact that, hey, if I can do something here in the United States, I can take what I've learned here and apply it somewhere else in the world and be successful. That's what the Kaiser Chiefs are. They have become one of the most successful teams in the world. They've become, you know, one of the marquee teams in Africa. And it all started with a player coming to the United States with aspirations, succeeding on the field, and then returning home to bring that success with him and bring a piece of America with him as he formed that team. So uh, I thought that was really cool. Also, you know, shout out, you know, Kaiser Chiefs because they always have some fire jerseys. Absolutely every one of them. Um, they're black and gold. Uh, you know, kaleidoscope style jerseys are always, always fun to watch. Um, and they look great on the field. And they also play well on the field as well. So check out that story. And then I'm going to end with this um, about the Boateng brothers. Jerome and Kevin Prince Boateng. Both Jerome and Kevin Prince are from Germany. They were born in West Berlin. Uh, their mother was German, but their father was Ghanaian. So they have that uh, German and Ghanaian heritage. And they made history in 2010 during the 2010 World Cup when Germany took on Ghana because on one side of the field was Jerome Boateng who suited up for Germany. On the other side, it was Kevin Prince who suited up for Ghana. They were the first brothers to ever line up against each other in an international match. We've seen it on the club level so many times, and we've seen players, uh, brothers play together. We've seen brothers, you know, play in the same league or play against each other in, in on the club level, but we've never seen it, at least until June 23rd, 2010, we had never seen it on the international stage. And of course, on the biggest international stage of them all, the World Cup. That is where these guys play. Germany and Ghana, when they played each other, the Boateng brothers uh, lined up against each other for the very first time. They also did it in 2014 because Germany and Ghana were in the group stage at that World Cup as well in Brazil. So they have done this twice, at least or at least twice um, at a World Cup. But I thought that was a cool story because in this day and age of dual nationalities, we've seen again, we've seen brothers play together. Uh, and play on the same team. Um, but we still have not really seen brothers with the opportunity to line up against each other on the international stage. And I thought it was really cool that a, that these brothers still, you know, were, you know, brothers while this is happening, but also they were bickering a little bit, right? Like just before the world cup, Kevin Prince injured then Germany ca uh, captain, Michael Ballack, in the 2010 FA Cup final, just like a couple weeks before. So Ballot couldn't make this World Cup that they eventually played against each other in. And Jerome held his brother responsible and like would not speak to him in the weeks leading up to the tournament. So it's one of those things where, yeah, they were they were even bickering on that day they made history together uh, as brothers do. So uh, I thought that was a really cool story. And, and just the fact that, again, they're always being linked by the fact that even though they play for different, you know, national teams they have laid the blueprint on how to represent your nation while still being brothers off the field so uh, i thought that was really cool i think those are all the ones i want to talk about today there's so look there's so many other stories that i've really enjoyed writing and i'll continue to bring them to you uh, as we continue to celebrate back black history month over the course of the rest of the month continue to take the time to learn more about some of these stories and others that i've done you can go to Stars and Stripes FC, click on the front page. There's a link to the hub right there. There's also one at the top of the page. Click on sections, and then you can find a link 
to all the Black History Month articles that I've done for the site. Read some, chime in with your favorites in the comments in the article to this particular episode. And if there are stories you'd like to see cover this month, I can try to get to them because there's a bunch of them that we can do. I have a list of some that I want to do, but if there's a cool story out there that I haven't heard about, I want to learn about it just as much as you want to read about it. So send those to me at ssfcpodcast at gmail.com. Remember, Black history is American history. Black history is world history. And it's no different in soccer where some of the great players and the great moments of this game's history wouldn't occur without the accomplishments of black athletes. We're going to do this again. I think the next time we have one of these, we'll focus on the American side. Again, so many American stories that I want to discuss, and I want to make sure I have the time for all of them. And then we may catch up later in the month with some of the players, you know, the individual stories on players that I think are really, really cool. But that will do it for episode 96 of the Stars and Stripes FC podcast. Thank you so much for listening. We will be back very soon. So until next time, take care.